Okay, so if you were here last week, did you do your homework? <laughs> I've used that excuse, excuse more than once in my life as a student. Now, if you didn't do your homework, it's all good. I'm not good at homework either. I totally get it. Uh, last week, I, I asked the congregation, for those of you he- who were here, I wanted to, to show you that uh, the entire Bible presents obedience as a response to grace. The whole Bible does that. Obedience is a response to grace. And so I, the homework I assigned... I wanted you to look up the very first verse of the Ten Commandments. The very first verse of the Ten Commandments. If you didn't do that, we can do it right now. Uh, Let's do it. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we'll look at verse 2. Exodus 20, verse 2. This is God speaking. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. And what's next in verse 3? You shall have no other gods before me. So do you see it? God did not say, obey these commandments and I'll bring you out of slavery. Be a good little boy. Be a good little girl. And I'll free you. I'll rescue you. No, that's not what God said. God said, I brought you out of slavery. Now, obey these commands. Do you see the difference? I brought you out of slavery. Now, obey. Law comes after liberation in the Bible. I'm going to say that again. Law comes after liberation. The entire Bible follows this pattern. We're going to see that again today, in today's passage. And so uh, this same principle is no different for you and me than it was for the Hebrews here in Exodus. It's the same thing under the new covenant. Christ has chosen us. He has delivered us from the slavery of sin He has brought us into his kingdom and his family all by grace and grace alone. Now, go and leave your life of sin. You see? Christians work from grace, not for grace. If you get the order wrong, you've got a different religion. You got a different religion. In fact, that's what separates Christianity from all other religions is the order of what I just said. Only in Christianity does liberation come first and law come second. Every other religion in the history of the world, law comes first, then liberation. And so let's continue today in Nehemiah chapter 9. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Nehemiah chapter 9. And this principle, I think once you, once you kind of understand it, you'll start to see it everywhere. This was mind-blowing for me several years ago when I kind of grabbed a hold of this. Principle that grace comes first, and then law comes second. And then uh, now I see it everywhere. I see it on every page of the Bible. I think we'll, we'll see it again uh, here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, before we jump in, and I'll, I'll, 
I want to let you in on an embarrassing, um, I don't know if it's a secret, I just don't tell a lot of people. Uh, this is a secret of mine. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw it out there. So I was in when I was in my 20s. I thought it would be a really good idea to start collecting DVDs. I thought that would be so neat to do that. It was a new technology at that time. I was like, this is gonna be great. I'm just gonna collect. And I love movies anyway, you know. So I was like, this would be neat. So. Man, every new movie that came out, I bought, <laughs> bought the DVD. And I mean, I collected a ton, ton. I, I would guess I have several hundred, probably, DVDs. And there is no telling how much money I spent on those DVDs. I, I shudder to think about how much money I spent on them, and I don't want to think too hard about it. Because I know that right now my entire collection is sitting in our attic. It's worth about 20 bucks. <laughs> it's worth about 20 bucks. I think, I think, you know, books a million will buy them from me for like a nickel a piece or something. Ridiculous. So <laughs> uh, I worked really hard to accumulate all these movies, and I successfully did so. Uh, and I did it all for absolutely no reason. It, <laughs> it has gotten me exactly nowhere. I just have a ton of DVDs. Uh, collecting spider webs in, in my attic. And, uh, and so maybe some of you are in a similar boat. Maybe it's not DVDs or maybe it's something else. You know, you just kind of accumulate stuff over time. It just piles up on you. And one day you wake up and you're like, holy cow, why do I have all this junk? You know, uh, and so typically uh, accumulation is a surprising, if not sad, part of our lives. <laughs> we just accumulate all this random stuff and typically it ends up pretty sad. Uh, but have you ever stopped to think about the accumulation of your sins? You know, we, we, there's, this, uh, there's this idea in, in our society that, you know, time heals all things. But time doesn't heal sin. It doesn't. Your, your sin and my sin, they just continue to add up and add up and add up uh, over time. They just continue and continue and continue to accumulate. How on earth are we going to deal with that? How do we deal with it? Well, this is the situation of the Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 9. And so if you've turned there, let's look at the first five verses to start with. Nehemiah chapter 9, we'll look at the first five verses. Verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, 
and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. I would like you all to give me a round of applause <laughs> for those. I, I worked hard on those names this week. <laughs> yeah, you can do the snaps. It's fine. A little louder, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I worked really hard on that. I, don't, I think I totally butchered it, but you get the point. Okay, there's some, <laughs> there's some Hebrew folks here, and they have hard names. Uh, and so, all right, so what's happening here? The people of Israel have accumulated a vast number of sins uh, against their God. A vast number. Uh, and I believe all the physical displays here are legit. I think that is the case. The commentaries that I have on Nehemiah all think that too. So uh, this is not uh, just some religious ritual that Israel's going through. They legitimately are repentant. Okay? Uh, their desire is to meet with God. Their desire is to make things right with God. And so they're, they're doing all these things. You know, they're fasting. They're wearing sackcloth. They're putting dust on their heads uh, in repentance. This is legit repentance. They are taking confession and repentance very seriously. Uh, and so they've actually marked off this whole day. They've taken this entire day to confess sin, listen to the word, worship, and pray. Now their prayer begins, if you notice, at the end of verse 5. And this prayer is remarkable. It's remarkable. There's nothing really quite like it in the Bible, I don't think. Uh, you see, uh, their prayer will actually, as we look through the uh, the rest of the chapter. Their prayer makes up the whole rest of this chapter, chapter 9, and it is essentially a summary of the entire Old Testament. Their prayer is a summary of the entire Old Testament, which is kind of weird and kind of neat. So if you don't know the story of the Old Testament, you're in luck. We're about to read it together. Uh, Nehemiah 9 is your chapter. If you want to know what the, essentially the whole story of the Old Testament is, it's right here in chapter 9. Uh, these people pray it. They pray the story of the Bible. This is incredible. Uh, and so not only is their prayer Bible-centered, which is awesome, it is also radically God-centered, which is also awesome. Uh, it, it is not a prayer focusing on them and their needs. It is a prayer focusing on God and his greatness. What a prayer this is. So let's dive into it. Um, notice verse 6. Uh, as they actually start the prayer all the way back, at Genesis 1 1. Let's read it. Verse 6. Uh, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. There is one God and one God alone. And Lord, you are that God. You alone are the creator, and everything else is what you created. Verse 6 is an expression of adoration, isn't it? And doesn't it mirror the beginning of the Lord's Prayer? If you know the Lord's Prayer. The famous prayer that starts with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I think you can only read that prayer in King James. I feel like it's just appropriate to read the Lord's Prayer in King James. It's just, it's so beautiful. It just rolls off the tongue so well. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Father, your name is great. Lord God, there is no other name like yours. Your name is above all names. That's how the Lord's Prayer begins, and that's how this prayer begins. It begins with the greatness of God. Verses 7 and 8 move to the gospel, actually moves to the gospel in God's choosing of Abraham. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Notice the story of Abraham presented here is in this order. It goes Genesis 12, then Genesis 17, and then Genesis 15. So it's out of order. Or is it? These verses are not in chronological order, but they are in theological order. They're in gospel order. Chosen first, then new identity, then walking in obedience. See, I told you it was going to be right here in Nehemiah 9. Uh, Y'all didn't believe me. Chosen first, then given a new identity, and then Abraham walks in obedience and faithfulness. Notice verse 8. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Israel didn't keep their promises. You and I don't keep our promises. But God keeps his. We are unrighteous. But God is righteous. And this is what Israel is admitting in this prayer. Now, verse 9 moves into the Exodus. So we've gone from Genesis to Abraham to the Exodus. Look at verses 9 through 14. 9 through 14. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Okay, so let's pause right here. Why is Israel recounting all of this? You know, like, why are they praying this way? Well, they are in present distress. 
great distress, mainly over their sin, the accumulation of their sin and what it has caused them. It has caused them great pain and suffering. And so they are recounting, if you notice, the mercy of God. In fact, that's what the story of the Old Testament is. It's a story of the mercy of God. So they're not just recounting the story for story's sake. (laughs) The Israelites are looking for mercy. And so they recount the wondrous stories of their heritage where God showed their ancestors such incredible mercy. That's why they're doing this. Now, verse 15 begins a transition. They move from exodus to exile. And what we will see next are six cycles of rebellion and mercy. Six cycles of God, you were good to us, We rebelled against you, and you showed us mercy. God, you were good to us again. We rebelled again, and you showed us mercy again. So verses 15 through 17 uh, is the first cycle. Let's read verses 15 through 17. Uh, In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. So, God, you were so good to us. And in response, we became stiff-necked, just like the idols we built to worship. And then you forgave us and showed us compassion. Isn't this the story of our lives? Thankfully, our God is more ready to forgive than we are to repent. He is forgiving, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding. And love. Can someone say amen? Okay, so the second cycle is in verses 18 through 25. I want you to look at our gracious God. Look at this. Verses 18 through 25. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way. 
they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. And you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. One of my favorite Christian scholars uh, said that one, uh, once a student came to him and said, he said, hey, uh, why doesn't this college have a class on grace? And the professor responded, well, because we already have a class on the Old Testament. We already have a class on the Old Testament. Now, despite what atheists and skeptics often argue, the Old Testament God is not a God of capricious wrath. No. The Old Testament God is a God of unending grace and goodness and mercy toward a wicked, rebellious, and stiff-necked people. That is the story of the Old Testament God. Verse 25, they ate to the full and were well-nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. And then what? The cycle starts again. Look at verses 26 and 27. They reveled in your great goodness, but they were disobedient. And rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. So, in the middle of their rebellion against him, God pursued these people. He pursued them. He sent them prophets to bring them back to him. And what did they do? They killed the prophets. And so what did God do? He disciplined them. He disciplined them. He delivered Israel into the hands of their enemies. But even God's discipline is grace. 
It is grace. His discipline is designed to bring us back to him. That is the purpose of it. And so the people cried out to God in anguish under his discipline. And what did he do? He rescued them. He heard their cries, and he rescued them. And then what happened? You guessed it. Look at verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the land of their enemies, to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. I used to scoff at the people of Israel as a young man. I used to think what they've done here is just ridiculous. How could they do this to a God who's been so good to them? It wasn't until I got to be a little older man that I realized that I'm actually not one bit different than the people of Israel. Not one bit. Okay, let's look at the last cycle. It's in verses 29 through 31. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. When we're told in the New Testament to be merciful, as our Father in heaven is merciful, this is what it's talking about. This is what it's talking about. You want to know what mercy looks like? Just flip through the pages of the Old Testament. Just flip over real quick to Nehemiah chapter 9. So, Israel uses the past stories of God's mercy to make their present plea to him. So they're they're setting this up. They're using all the ancient stories of God's incredible mercy all to get to this one impassioned plea for mercy. Okay? Let's look at verses 32 through 38 and finish out the chapter. Verse 32. Here's their plea. They say, Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. 
in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Okay, so what do we do about this chapter? What do we do with it? So we just use it as a neat example of prayer? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Nehemiah 9 is not just the story of Israel. It's the story of you. It's the story of me. It is the story of God's continuous pursuit of sinners. But if all we do is pray Nehemiah 9, we'll just continue the cycle. We'll just continue the cycle if that's all that we do. Yes, Nehemiah 9 is the story of the Bible. But thankfully, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the Bible. No, this is only the story up until this point, about 400 B.C. And so the question then becomes, did God answer this prayer? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Probably not in the way that they anticipated but God did indeed answer it. He answered it in the form of a baby in a lowly manger in a lowly town called Bethlehem. You see, 400 years after Nehemiah 9 and its telling of the tragic cycle of human history, there would come one who would break the cycle he would break the cycle forever. Though Israel's sins and your sins and my sins had accumulated to incalculable levels, in one ultimate act of mercy, all the punishment due to us for those sins was poured out on Jesus was poured out on Jesus. On the cross, God demonstrated perfect judgment. 
perfect mercy. The cycle is over. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. By faith. You see, folks, God will punish all sin. God will punish all sin, either in a place called hell or a hill called Calvary. The very moment the very millisecond you place your faith in Jesus. That mountain of sin that you have accumulated in your life, all of it is transferred to the cross. All of it. All of your past sins, all of your present sins, all of your future sins. The second you believe. The millisecond you place your faith in Jesus, your sin is placed on his shoulders. And he pays what you should have paid, what I should have paid. Now, what does this mean for the non-Christian here tonight? It means this. It means that salvation is free. It's free. Salvation is freely available to you right here, right now. It is not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, now's the time. Now's the time. If the truth of your sin and Jesus' death on your behalf has struck you in your heart, that is God's very spirit doing that work. That's God's very spirit doing that work. That is God drawing you to himself. If right now you believe in your heart and can confess with your mouth that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, congratulations. You just became a Christian tonight. You just became a Christian. And if that's you, I would love to know about it. <laughs> I would just love to celebrate with you. And so if you became a Christian here tonight, you placed your faith in Jesus, I would love for you to see me after the service. You could see me or one of our elders. We would love to celebrate with you. We would love to throw a little miniature party here tonight at Life Journey for you if you just became a believer. You know, if that's too awkward for you, I get it. 
you can actually go to ljc.life if you'd like to, ljc.life, and click on the Next Steps tab. And on the Next Steps tab, you can click the circle there that says, Tonight I Became a Christian. And I'll just follow up with you on email. If it's still uncomfortable for you to come forward and talk to me after the service. I would just love to celebrate with you. Now, what does all this mean for Christians here tonight? What does it mean for Christians? Well, for one, it means that you can rest. You can rest. You are no longer accumulating any sins. Your sins no longer count against you. The mountain of sins that you have piled up throughout your life it's all been washed away. It's all been washed away. The penalty has been paid. So, don't let the enemy lie to you. Don't walk around with condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is only rest. Rest. And second of all, Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, I think, does give us a great example for prayer, for praying through the story of the Bible. But when we pray the story of the Bible, we don't stop at the end of Nehemiah 9. <laughs> Let's not stop at Nehemiah 9. Let's keep going. <laughs> Let's keep going. Let's add the rest of the story. Let's add the rest of the story. Let's add that precious baby in the manger. Let's add his perfect life. Let's add his incredible sacrifice. And let's add his victorious resurrection. It's okay to pray the Bible. Let's make sure we're praying the whole story, though. We, we don't have to pray. We don't have to pray as if fighting sin is just this difficult thing that we have to do. We don't have to fight sin with a defeatist mindset. We don't have to beg God for mercy. No. God's ultimate act of mercy has already been given at the cross. We pray. We repent with a victor's mindset. Not a defeatist mindset. Because our merciful Savior has won the victory for us. And as we are about to take the Lord's Supper, let's remember the words of that great hymn. Bread of the world in mercy broken. Wine of the soul in mercy shed. By whom the words of life were spoken and in whose death our sins are dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these incredible words. Thank you for Nehemiah 9. We are grateful for this example. We are grateful for these words. But more than anything, we are thankful that Nehemiah 9 is not the end of the story. We are thankful that though we hated you, you loved us. And though we didn't really want to have anything to do with you, you wanted to have everything to do with us. And though we were unrighteous, you were righteous. 
even sent us your son. <laughs> what a God you are that you would love sinners and rebels like us. Thank you for your great love and thank you for your great son who took all the sins of the world on his own shoulders because of his great love and mercy. What a God we have. What a Savior we have. And I pray, Father, that as we end this service and as we leave here tonight, that we would just go in that spirit, that spirit of love and mercy and not be weighed down by the baggage the enemy wants to weigh us down with that we would leave here light as a feather, knowing that all of our sins have been washed away. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, for Jesus.